this evening's reading is Joel chapter 2, verses 1 to 17, and that's on page 913 of the Church Bibles. That's Joel chapter 2, verses 1 to 17, on page 913. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops. Like a crackling fire consuming stubble. Like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defences without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses. Like thieves, they enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. Gather the people, consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders, Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep before the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Remember that feeling and seek medical attention if you need it. There are many reasons that one might blow a trumpet. Um, might be because the preachers asked you to do it. Uh, it might be because we're in a brass band or it might be um, for any number of reasons uh, because we've got an announcement to make. 
But in Joel chapter 2, the trumpet blows for two reasons. To raise the alarm and to call us to action. To raise the alarm and to call us to action. Verse 1 says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. And then verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Last week, if you were here, um, we read about a swarm of locusts that swept through the land. But even as the people mourned that natural disaster, they were told to mourn the coming of yet another day of destruction. Um, Like the ominous ripples in the glass of water in Jurassic Park. Natural disasters warn of coming destruction. And we read in verse 15 last week, Alas, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. And now in chapter 2, the prophet Joel takes us to that very day, the day of the Lord, the moment where that destruction arrives. Let's be honest, we don't often think about the day of the Lord, do we? Um, We're busy, focused on the here and now, but the trumpet here calls and demands our attention. You don't blow a trumpet if you've got some kind of advice that you can take or leave. You don't blow a trumpet if you're going to announce something that can wait until next Tuesday. What we're hearing here is urgent. It demands our full attention. We need to be alarmed and we need to be called to action. Um, Let's uh, click on and we'll find our first title, which is Blow the Trumpet in Zion. The day of the Lord is coming. In verses 1 and 2, God announces the approaching danger. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Zion was another way of referring to the city of Jerusalem, which was a city that was spread across two hills. Um, Two hills, but it was also surrounded by higher mountains. So in times of threat, watchmen could be put on the walls of Jerusalem and they would look out over the valleys and up to the surrounding mountains. If these watchmen saw an approaching army, then it was their job to sound the alarm by blowing a, uh, not a euphonium, but a shofar, a uh, kind of Hebrew trumpet. Um, The sound would be repeated and echo throughout the city. Hairs on the backs of necks would stand on end and shivers would go down spines. Everyone would know what that sound meant. In Joel chapter 2, God tells these watchmen to blow the trumpet and all the people tremble because the day of the Lord is coming. Here is described a kind of reverse dawn. At sunrise, you might expect to see the first glimmer of the sun's light um, appearing above the mountains and then slowly spreading towards you, illuminating more and more as the sun rises. But according to verse 2, 
On the day of the Lord, darkness dawns. Black clouds of gloom rise and darkness spreads over those mountains towards the walls, towards the city. And even worse, that darkness is accompanied by a mighty army, larger than there ever has been in all of history. Um, Some of you might have seen the second Lord of the Rings film, the heroes and a few hundred villagers. uh, They have fled to the walled fortress of Helm's Deep, and there they await approaching doom. The darkness of night falls, the uh, rain clouds break, and as the people look out from the walls, they see lightning flash, and a vast army is revealed, 10,000 strong, marching towards the helpless people watching on the walls. Such is the terror of the day of the Lord. But what's the reality that's being prophesied here? What exactly is the day of the Lord and when does it happen? Some people think that this chapter is just another way of describing the natural disaster that had already taken place, the locust swarm. And certainly, as you look through those verses, you notice that the effect on the land is similar. Um, In verse 3, there's a lush land that's turned into a desert waste. And the noise and movements of the army in the following verses sound sort of locusty. Um, A noise like that of chariots. They charge like warriors. They scale the walls like soldiers. They climb into houses. Um, But the future focus of this chapter and everything that follows makes that interpretation unlikely. Other people think that this chapter is describing an invasion of a literal army from Babylon or from another of Israel's, uh, Jerusalem's enemies. It could be an event in Jerusalem's future, but our past, and yes, there is kind of a lot of military language here, but if it was a literal army, why would the sound be like chariots? Why would they gallop like cavalry? Why would uh, they charge like warriors and scale the walls like soldiers? If it was a literal army, then the word like would be completely unnecessary there. On balance, this day, I think it's most likely, refers to the final day of judgment at the end of time. Through Joel, God is describing that day using a metaphor of locusts, an army of them. Um, He's using the experience that the people have just lived through to describe what that great final terrible day will be like. And um, there's some uh, additional evidence for that in Revelation chapter 9 verse 3 where the coming day of the Lord is described as locusts there as well. And just like the locust swarm that went before, that will be a terrible, terrible day. If there's one kind of unifying idea that runs through verses 3 to 10, it's this. There is no avoiding that army of judgment. There's no escape. As verse 3 says, nothing escapes them. As locusts devoured everything in their path, so there will be no avoiding. There will be no escape from God's judgment. There's no escape and there's nowhere to run. Verse 6 says, At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. 
Forget Jerusalem. There are no other nations that you could go to that would be able to face up to this um, judgment, to repel this attack. They are equally as fearful, equally as helpless. There is nowhere to run from God's judgment. There's nowhere to escape. There's nowhere to run. And there's nowhere to hide. Walls offer no safety because the locust army scales them and they plunge through defenses. And there's no hiding place at home either because they climb into houses. They climb through windows. There is nowhere to hide from God's judgment. There's no escape. There's nowhere to run. And there's nowhere to hide But we haven't even got to the most alarming bit yet. I think verse 11 is terrible. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? We'll put ourselves again on the walls of Jerusalem looking out over the valleys and up towards those mountains. Darkness is sweeping towards us, and with it, this dreadful army of locusts. We're trembling with fear already, but then we hear a dreadful sound. The rumble and roar of thunder. Thunder that shakes your bones. But it's not the thunder of a storm. It is the Lord who thunders. Perhaps it's the roar of his voice, a battle cry. Perhaps it's just the sound of his approach. But either way, this thundering draws our eyes to the head of this army. Leading the charge towards us is the Lord himself. This coming unavoidable destruction is at the very command of God Almighty. Joel doesn't mention the specific sin that has provoked the judgment of the Lord, but he doesn't actually need to. We can fill in the gaps either by reading the other prophets or uh, we can fill in the gaps through our own experience. These people, just like the whole of humanity, have turned away from their creator God. We have turned away from our creator God. It makes no difference that they happen to live in God's city, just like it makes no difference that we happen to go to church. Their rebellion and ours has provoked the justice of the Lord, and devastation is on its way. On that day, there will be many people who have been to church their whole lives, and yet they will find themselves in the army's path. They will look out with horror as they see the Lord Jesus at the head of this army coming in judgment. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? The point of these verses is to be alarmed and to sound the alarm. These words ought to cause us to tremble. If you don't like the talk of all this coming judgment, good. That's the right response. It is alarming. It is upsetting. It is unpleasant. Yes, we'd rather not talk about it, but it will do no good to shut our eyes or look in the other direction, because the day will come all the same. We should be alarmed, and we should sound the alarm. A watchman who sees the incoming army and yet leaves his trumpet 
on, his, on the floor next to him, unblown. What is he doing? He's not doing his job. Yes, he might shock a few people if he sounds a trumpet blast. Yes, people might be offended that he's interrupted their day with an unpleasant sound. But he still has to blow the trumpet. And I don't think this means that we all have to kind of get out a big sign and be marching up and down the high street um, shouting the end is nigh. This isn't the only thing that we're meant to be telling people. But when we look and find opportunities to explain the gospel, we certainly can't leave judgment out. Another way that you can help sound the alarm is by, um, you know, collectively as a church, we can sound the alarm. So you can encourage preachers and teachers who don't leave out the bad news. Um, I wonder how many of us said thank you to Dan this morning when he preached a message of judgment. Naturally, um, preachers and teachers, we would love to avoid the bad news. We'd much rather preach encouraging messages because we know we'll get fantastic feedback afterwards. But you can help this church keep blowing the trumpet, keep sounding the alarm by encouraging the preaching of the bad news too. So by saying thank you for not avoiding the difficult stuff, you are doing your bit to ensure that we as a church sound the alarm for years and decades to come. The day of the Lord is coming. Second point, blow the trumpet in Zion, gather the people to return. Um, Again, in verse 15, we've got the call, uh, the commands to blow the trumpet. But this time it isn't about sounding the alarm, this time it's about a call to action. And that action is to return to the Lord your God. This call assumes that the people have been walking away, doesn't it? Um, They've turned their faces away from their God and they're walking towards other things. Maybe the reason no specific sin is mentioned is because it actually makes us makes it easier for us to see ourselves in these pages. Um, so like if Joel had said, uh, you guys, you're withholding your tithes from the temple, we could go, oh great, I'm not guilty. This doesn't involve me at all. But because he's left the sin blank, we get to fill in the blanks with our own specific sins. It makes it easier for us to see ourselves on these pages. We have all walked away from God in one way or another. We've all turned our faces towards other priorities of one kind or another. What about you? How have you walked away from the Lord? How are you walking away from the Lord? These verses, uh, verse 12 to 17, describe how and why we must return. We'll think about the why at the end, but first... How must we return? And there's two answers here. How must we return? We must return with all our hearts. Verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Outward expressions, like Fasting, weeping, mourning, putting on sackcloth 
Um, there's nothing wrong with those things. They can be good. Um, they're spoken of well in Joel. But on their own, they are not the way to return to the Lord. God cares more about broken hearts than broken garments. The outward is completely optional. The inward is what is essential. In much of the Bible, the heart is thought of and described in a way that's different to the way that we think of it. So we think of the heart as the center of emotions, the thing that we feel with. Um, but in the Bible, we feel with our guts. Um, our heart in the Bible is the center of longing, the center of decision-making. Our heart is where our will resides. So um, in the Bible, you feel with your guts, you think with your heads, and you long with your heart. So returning with all your heart is about more than just regaining a feeling of love for God. And rending your heart is about more than just feeling upset. Those things are involved, but this means more. The one who returns with all their heart is making God himself their deepest longing. And the one who rends their heart has broken their rebellious will in order to conform it to the will of God. Did you get that? I'll repeat it. The one who returns with all their heart is making God himself their deepest longing. The one who rends their heart has broken their rebellious will to submit to what God wants. Let me land this. To return to the Lord with all your heart, you might want to pray something like this. Think of all those other things that you've been walking towards and pray, Lord, I don't want all that anymore. I just want you. Or you might pray this prayer, Lord, I don't want to want all that anymore. Help me to want you. It's actually the same prayer. If you want to want something, that is what you want. We return with all our hearts. And we return together. In chapter 1, the people were commanded to mourn because of the locust swarm. And this wasn't something that they were to do on their own. It was something that they were to do together. And a very similar response happens in verses 15 to 17 here. Whereas chapter 1 was about mourning together, chapter 2 is about returning together. The trumpet sounds in verse 15, and it calls the people to gather uh, as a sacred assembly, even as the army is on its way. The elders, the children, even the feeding babies are called to gather. Brides and bridegrooms are interrupted on their wedding day. There are certain events in life that are so serious that anyone and everyone has to just drop everything. And this is such a day, like when there's been a terrible tragedy and all leave is cancelled for emergency services. Everyone get here right away. As the priests led the morning in chapter 1, so they now lead the people in returning to the Lord. In verse 17, they're commanded to weep and they pray these words. Spare your people, Lord. 
Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? This this, this prayer leans on God's covenant commitment with the people. They pray, your people, your inheritance. This prayer is that God's people wouldn't be humiliated. And this prayer is that God's own honor would not be compromised. We return with all our hearts and we return together. As a church, as Christchurch Banstead, the coming day of the Lord should motivate our prayers of repentance and our cries for mercy. As we gather all together on a Sunday, weeping for sin is not out of place. That is right. And when we say confessions together, let it not be an empty ritual, but words from the heart. And we can gather to return to the Lord in smaller groups too. Your smaller local groups, your Christian friendships, they should be and are safe places to admit sin to one another. Yes, it can be scary to admit sin. But a true brother, a true sister will not judge you. They will kneel down beside you and say, yes, I've sinned too. Let's return to the Lord together. That's how to return, with all our hearts, together. But why return? Why return? Because of who God is. You'll have noticed that I've missed out verses 13 and 14. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Return to the Lord because he is gracious and compassionate. When a sinner returns home, it's in our Father's nature to run towards them and embrace them. We are covered in mud and mess, and yet he will embrace us nevertheless. We are covered in prickles and thorns, and yet he will hold us close, even if he is pierced in the process. Return to the Lord because he's gracious and compassionate. Return to the Lord because he is slow to anger. Our God is long-suffering and patient. He first used that description of himself when he met with Moses, as we read earlier in Exodus 34. he just rescued Israel out of slavery, but they grumbled and grumbled and grumbled. Hundreds of years passed between Exodus and Joel, and those were years full of grumbling and more grumbling and more sin. And yet still God holds out his hand in mercy. Still he was long-suffering, and he does the same today. You're not returning for a telling off, He is slow to anger. Return to the Lord because he is abounding in love. Or another translation, return to the Lord because he is abounding in steadfast love. Matt Chandler tells the following story to illustrate what steadfast love is. The first seven years of our marriage were very difficult. 
My heart grew dark on multiple occasions. I remember one occasion in particular because it marked a real turn in our marriage. I had said some very cruel things to Lauren that day. I was frustrated. I was angry. I thought she was selfish and self-absorbed, and I told her so. I admit with shame that I wanted to wound her. I was in the kitchen, and she was around the corner, sitting in a chair in the other room. I was being a terrible person, just hateful, and I threw words out there that I knew would cut deep. I didn't even regret that I said them. I wanted to hurt her. I'll never forget this. Lauren came around the corner. I was stealing myself for whatever she'd throw back at me and getting ready to fight back, but she just came up and grabbed me, and she pulled me really close to her, and she began sobbing. She cried and cried and cried as she held me. She said, I don't know what happened to you, but I'm not going anywhere. Those were maybe the most powerful words I'd heard up to that point in our relationship. I was at my absolute worst. And she had every earthly reason to say, forget this, forget you, I'm done. But she didn't. I'm not going anywhere. Can you believe that? It broke me. It wounded me in the good way, in the right way. It startled me and helped me in a way that I could never foresee or imagine. I'm not going anywhere, she said. And that's when I said, I'm going to get help. That is the never going anywhere love that God has for his people. That's why you should return to him. And finally, return to the Lord because he relents from sending calamity. If we turn in repentance towards him, he will turn away wrath from us. Let me tell you about the day, the time when the day of the Lord arrived ahead of schedule. Again, you stand on the top of the walls of Jerusalem. Again, you look out over the valleys and to the mountains around and above. Darkness dawns and that army rushes relentlessly towards you. At the head of the army is the Lord Almighty himself. A dreadful day. Who can endure it? The darkness has covered the land. Destruction is imminent. But suddenly the army turns. Outside the walls there is another hill. A rock. A place that looks like a skull. On that hill a broken man hangs on a cross. The army of judgment turns and charges in all its fury towards him. He is engulfed and we are spared. Jesus chose to face that day himself so that we might be spared. So that all who trust him don't have to face that day themselves. He is the priest who leads the people in prayer. Spare your people, Lord. And he prays that prayer knowing exactly what it costs him. The day of the Lord is still coming. Blow the trumpet. It's still coming. But if you return to the Lord today, for the first time or for the thousandth time, you will be spared from that dreadful day. Return. Return with all your hearts. Return together. 
return because of who our God is. Let's pause and bow our heads. Let's think about how we need to return to the Lord our God. A few moments and then I'll close in prayer. Father, we are just appalled that we would ever turn away from you and walk towards other things. Help us. We don't want to want those things anymore. Help us to long for you. Break our rebellious wills so that we might want what you want and love what you love. Thank you so much that you are a God worth returning to. Thank you that you are just so beautifully gracious and compassionate. Thank you that you are slow to anger. Thank you that you are abounding in steadfast love. Thank you that when Jesus died, you turned your wrath away from us. Thank you, Jesus, for praying. Spare your people, Lord. Father, please help us to sound the alarm. In Jesus' name, amen. The musicians are going to come up to the front. And uh, we're going to sing praise that we have a high priest like Jesus.